Hey, you, Prime members, you can listen to Three Little Words ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This podcast is brought to you by Quorn, the nation's favourite meat-free brand. Quorn is a great partner for this show because I personally haven't eaten meat for 35 years, so Quorn has been a great source of protein for me. On every podcast, Tony's going to give us an interesting fact about Quorn. That's right, John, and I'm calling these interesting Quorn facts quacks. <laughs> so, here's, here's your first quack. The carbon footprint of Quorn mince is 90% lower than beef mince. So it's a good choice if you're looking to have a positive impact on the planet. I believe everyone should eat less meat. It'll bring so many benefits both to your health and the environment. And if that's something that you're planning on doing, you'll find that Quorn is a great option. This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hello, I'm John Bishop. I'm here with my mate, writer and actor and co-conspirator Tony Pitt. And together we present Three Little Words, a show where we ask a guest to come along prepared with three words that mean something to them. They may be words that make them laugh, make them cry, just make them think or reveal something about them in a way that perhaps we wouldn't have found out otherwise yeah it is because yes people bring the gifts to us don't they they bring uh they bring their life experiences encapsulated in a word and uh and it's interesting to uh, different perspectives on one word now a word that will have very little weight in my and your life will have huge significance uh, in others there you go. That that that's it. That's put a lot of pressure on our guests today. Yeah, yeah. So deliver. <laughs> deliver. Come up with a bloody good word. So today, our guest is a former marine who served in Afghanistan. He was injured by a bomb which killed two of his mates, and a week later he woke up in hospital in Birmingham and started hundreds of hours of surgery and years of recovery. That recovery led him to the Invictus Games, where he won medals and worked closely with Prince Harry, who created the event for wounded servicemen and women. He's a motivational speaker, a father, now a TV presenter, and somebody who's now under a lot of pressure to come up with three brilliant words. Our guest today is JJ Chalmers. JJ, how are you? First of all, for those people who don't know you, what's the JJ stand for? Uh, it's John James. My dad's my dad's a John. They wanted to name me after him and then suddenly realised that that would just get confusing. And then, you know, we don't live in America, so it's not John Jr., uh, and then, yeah, stuck with JJ. The funny thing is, I, I always thought day would come when I'd have to grow up and become an adult and uh. be called John. Um, but that that never seemed to come, particularly because I joined the Marines and you never grow up. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a Peter Pan club. And then also everyone's got a nickname in there. So I came with my own, which it meant that I didn't get some, you know, 
dodgy name. Uh, and then when I ended up in telly, it just kind of works. So the JJ, when you said you, you went into the Marines all the way as you were a kid, JJ is like a cool name, isn't it? It's like, is it, you sound cool. You sound, oh, like, massive, you sound yeah, like one of those kids off one of those American Better programs. Better than Pixie or Bish, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, of course. But you, you think, oh, great, that was... In, in happy days, there would have been a JJ. There'd have been someone going, hey, JJ! Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, JJ, yeah, yeah. let me have a go at your skateboard. <laughs> <laughs> Let me have a go on your skateboard. I couldn't think of anything. I did, I did skateboard, in fact. Yeah, once upon a time. Yeah. So, so, but you grew up in obviously Scotland. Yeah, Edinburgh. I grew up in uh, sort of the outskirts of Edinburgh, and uh, you know, a little bit sort of. Yeah, I never went too far away from Edinburgh. It's always been my sort of home, and and even when I was in the Marines and they based me down in Plymouth, it was still. You know, I still kept at least somewhere I could park my, you know, my my suitcase, my grab bag up in Edinburgh, uh, and you know it's still the same now. I'm very lucky I get to travel the world and you know see amazing places. But I, and you guys probably know it because I'm sure you spent lots of time up there during the Fringe and the festival. It is, it's a ridiculously, yes. it's a brilliant place to just yeah, have yeah. been born. Yes, you know, yeah. people travel the world to go to that city. And and I just happened to be born there. How lucky was that? Well, I think architecturally, it's it, it's I think it's possibly my favourite in the world. I think it's the most beautiful, beautiful city. So, like, we're going to get into your words, but I always find it interesting when somebody's join the service uh, because we have a different relationship with the military now i think than what we did throughout my lifetime there was a time where there was a degree of apathy to the military and then there was a degree of antagonism uh, and then i think people began to realize that actually the soldiers or all the military across you know all the services are doing the bidding that's placed upon them and so, you know, whether the, whether the wars are legal or not legal, whether they're right, whether they're wrong, these are individuals who, who have chose to represent us. And if the politicians are putting them somewhere, that's not their fault. So I, and I think because of that, and we'll come on to the Invictus Games and everything, I think we have a different relationship. So I, I'm, I'm guessing, what, time, what, what age were you when you joined the military and what year was that? I was 17 back in 2005. Wow. So uh, you, you were at that cusp of, of, of popular opinion sort of swaying a little exactly, bit. Exactly, exactly. So what made you make that decision? Uh, you know what? I, I, had been raised, I, I, I had been raised with the sense of, of service to your community, you know, wanting to give something back, you know, being, being part of the greater good. But also knowing that I wanted, um, you know, you can do that in many different ways. There's lots of ways you can volunteer your services. Um, but I knew that being a Royal Marine, having been a Royal Marine cadet when I was at school, it was this very special club that I wanted to see whether I was capable of, of joining. And I, and, I, and I saw Royal Marines with their Green Berets on and they were superheroes to me. And so there's a part of me that wanted to challenge myself to see if I could do it. But the other thing was, and as you say, it was 2005, so we're talking two years after the initial invasion of Iraq, and we've been in Afghanistan for a, a few years now. And, and you know, aside from the popular opinion sort of beginning to change, there was also, you know, hearing the stories that these guys had, had lived through, some of them, you know, very difficult, but some of them absolutely brilliant, whether that was on operations or training around the world, whatever it was, the thing that really hit home was they were doing this with their best mates, and I just thought, how 
how incredible would it be to get to go and do that job and get to do it with your best mates, uh, you know, and have this absolute brotherhood. So that that sort of hooked me. And so, yeah, 17 years old, I, asked, I had to ask my mum to send, sign a piece of paper as to whether I could actually join, you know, which they, you know, were obviously hesitant about, but they knew it was my dream then and there was nothing that was going to hold me back from doing it. And that was the thing for me. Nothing was going to hold me back. Um, people ask if Royal Marines training is difficult, and of course it is. It's physically and mentally you know, draining. But actually, it's the easiest thing I've ever done in my life because nothing was going to stop me achieving that goal. And when the demons in your head start talking to you and saying, you can't do this, that's when you try and prove them wrong. And, and except for getting injured nothing was going to stop me getting there. And that was it. You just, you just cracked on and got on with it. It's unlikely, as it seems. I had the same thing at 17. I wanted to join the Marines, and it was Limston. I think yeah. you would have gone to, and it was nine years. I, I may have changed. It was nine years you'd have to change up for, and I loved every... I loved the idea of it all, apart from being told what to do, yeah. which was a, might have been a, a little bit of a... Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing which draws a lot of people back. And actually, it's, you know, it goes back to what John was saying about that you know my 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 ability to change conflict and the conflicts that i would have to face and fight in you know is the same as your guys i get to vote i can vote my government in and they make the decisions on my behalf and so you make you know that signing up that you know you will go where you where you will and and funnily enough at that time you know we were all facing towards iraq afghanistan in many yes. ways that, that war had been won you know and and that was a conflict that started when i was what, 14 years old or something like that you know, in many ways, I didn't think I would end up there all those years later. It's it's interesting when you say you nearly joined because I I had to say I I had the conversation. Right. I went to the Royal Marines uh, recruitment yeah. guy in the library where we lived. <laughs> what a narrow escape of service is that? Unbelievable. It's all me and you. Could have been. <laughs> we could, imagine that. We'd have lost everything. It's, it's unfair. I just wanted to pick up a something. No, you can said. I just yes, say mate, what happened though? Yeah. Can I just yeah, say because it's important in in relation to your age, the fact that at seventeen you made that decision. Because I remember I was sixteen, and uh, and you could go. So I had to, I had to meet with the the, the guy, and then I went back and met him again. He said, right, you know, and and I had that informal sort of interview chat. And he said, I think you'd be a good marine, but you've got to get your mum and dad to sign you in. And I went home with the little pack, and I said to me dad, "I, w- I want to join the army." He said, "What?" I said, "I want to. I want to be a marine." And he went, "No." And I went, "Okay." That, that, and that was it. it. Uh, and wow. I tell you why, because me dad just said no, and I and I didn't argue with him, and he and he left it to be fair to me dad for a few days, and then he, he said, "You haven't asked me why," and I said, "Well, because you probably think it was a good thing." He said, "No." Come back in two years, and if you do, then it'll be different. But see it in two years, and that's why at seventeen to have that drive and that conviction, and as you were saying, Tony, to sign up for like nine years of your life would seem like forever. It's huge. You, you picked up exactly uh, my point because you said you know what you're in for, and that's a bone of contention with me because at seventeen, when you join any service, as you said, you, you could feasibly do twenty years without seeing anything, or you could have it the way that you've had it do you feel having gone through the the worst case scenario that uh, at 17 you were you were fully cognizant of all the that when you say you know what you're gonna you, you couldn't really have known right well it's, it's funny 
it's hard to describe. I mean, you know, even with all the training we go through, nothing prepares you for the real thing. And, you know, and I've seen the sharpest of the sharp end in terms of, you know, what's the, what was to come. But actually, I kind of there's a there's a big there's a part of you that expects that, and there's a part of you that makes your bed with it. Absolutely, you know, there's almost a sort of passive aggressive acceptance of death. You just put it to one side that this could happen. Um, and you get on with it, and that's you know actually that's and you get on with it was my sort of granny's phrase, you know, proper airshow women, you know, just get on with it. Um, and so you know I kind of accepted that, but you know by the time I actually went to war, I was you know I was in my early twenties, but we had guys, I had a bloke in my checkpoint who when we deployed, he didn't come out till about two weeks later because he was still seventeen, and then he turned seventeen, he had his birthday, and he flew out the very next day, and you know that bloke was one of the finest Marines we had on the ground. And, you know, when, you know, and I'll get into it, the point at which my life was saved, it was saved by 18-year-old blokes who, you know, in that very instant were absolutely men. We could talk around this whole subject for the whole of the show, but what I'd like to do is to, is to delve in to your words. Uh, and as you know, the structure of the show is there's three words that you give tony has prior warning of these words i don't so can you tell me what your first word is uh, my first word is yes pretty simple pretty simple one uh, but dictionary corner might tell us otherwise well no 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 uh, actually the the, the absolute corner dictionary that's the cor- first time you've been called well the, the first part of that from word, an officer from the, the fir- yeah the first part of that word i've been called very often so i um uh, actually it's the the the, the converse is the case but uh, i think that the clue's in the question really so uh, the etymology it's a it's an english word from the old english it there's actually uh, here it says 450 which says drawnery. The original pronunciation was G-Y-S-E, which I imagine would be a G's. Uh, Middle English, it would have been Y-I-S, Y-I-S, and then finally, yes. The words yes and no are not easily classified into any of the eight conventional parts of speech. They're sometimes classed as interjections. So, as I said, not a great uh, deal have I found other than yes seems to me to be one of those. It seems to be a tiny word with huge and tangible consequences. Well, here's a question. Is there a society anywhere that could have evolved to operate as we understand it without the word yes? Well, then the answer to that has to be no. And if the answer is no, that's a yes, there has to be a yes. Uh, well, I get Ooh, that was oh, I tell you what, <laughs> this has become countdown. <laughs> so tell us, JJ, why pick what appears to be a simple word but holds everything in it? Yeah, it's it's twofold. I think first and foremost, it is all the greatest adventures in my life basically came from saying yes and then finding out what the question was afterwards. You know, it's that it it, it kind of ties into the the positive mental attitude, which some people ask me if it's something the Marines gave me. People ask me if it's something that my injuries gave me. But in reality, I would have never found myself in those circumstances if I wasn't the kind of person that looked for the yes, looked for the opportunity, the positivity, because I would have quit on day one. Or in fact, maybe I wouldn't have even walked into the office, you know, you know, to make that inquiry. So, you know, I, I've always been willing to to sort of jump right in and say yes. And, you know, maybe I've, I've got the fear of missing out sort of thing as well. Um, but, you know, I've always wanted to get stuck in. And then I suppose the other part of it is, 
you know when I was talking about being raised in a house that you know that that put an idea on service and giving back to community actually when it really boils down to it I was raised in a in a in a house where if somebody asked for something you said yes you looked for the opportunity to help other people and you know that's still true to this day and I'm renovating my daughter's nursery at the moment and you know they just wanted their grass cut and I said yes and the next thing you know it's just snowballed into this big wonderful project but it's because I was raised and my brother sister mum dad were all the same you know you look for that opportunity uh, to help. Were you raised in a religious house? Yeah my old man's a minister in fact wow. he, he retired as the the head of the Church of Scotland effectively but you know you know my my upbringing except for going to church on a Sunday and seeing my old man standing in the pulpit wasn't overtly religious you know if you meet my old man he'll talk to you about his grass and his and playing golf far before he would talk to you about religion so that impulse was it's a, it's a nurtured impulse from your childhood to say yes and that sense of community and as you said I, you wouldn't have walked through that door unless you had a big yes in you have subsequent events compromised that I think I know the answer, but I'd still like to hear. Has that yes been compromised? Uh, no, would be, would be yeah. the thing. You know, the, <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> um, this uh, is one of those, you know those games where you go, you can't say yes or no. <laughs> this interview would be, feel, yeah. it'd be, it'd be yeah. done, wouldn't it? Yeah. It'd be, but it, but, but I, I asked because I was thinking you're propelled through life by whatever your parents put into you. Then you kind of, you find yourself through... Uh, through life, life sort of teaches you who you are as opposed to being your parents, and that my initial journey uh, through life, uh, I, I think I've come full circle, and I'm, I'm somebody else completely. Life sort of taught me, whereas that that must be so early planted in you and so deep in you that uh, it's immovable, right? That's really interesting because I've I've been born twice in my life, basically. You know, the the moment when I survived in Afghanistan and should be dead was like a rebirth for me but actually I was born the same person again and that's not true for everybody um, particularly people that suffer mental health issues as a result and specifically post-traumatic stress disorder which of course is you know it's one specific mental health condition which in many ways is more of a memory condition because it's 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 the rewiring of your brain in an instant effectively by essentially an overload of information and you're brain just doesn't know what to do with that and so there are people that survived the day that that i was injured in that ultimately were unscathed but you know relive it every single day whereas i can't even barely remember what happened to me but as i say i woke up the same person that i'd been in afghanistan now i have grown and i've matured as a person and i've had what actually we call post-traumatic growth um but but actually i'm still the same bloke and essentially that's just a childish idiot really but i just know when to behave i spent a bit of time going to the unit in birmingham where people come back and um, so when i've gigged in birmingham i've often gone up there so this is a unit at queen elizabeth isn't it where you go in and you see them within the first 24 hours when people come back and there's some horrendous things and one of the things that has struck me Every time I've ever been there, and every every veteran I've met in recent times, is uh, the lack of regret. I've never been in there with somebody who's lost limbs or somebody who's in horrendous conditions and has no idea what the future prognosis is. Who's gone? Why did Why did I sign up? And when you said your word is yes, yes comes with a consequence. But as you said, Tony, the balance of that consequence is. Is it always worth it? From what you're saying is adopting that as a philosophy of life 
even with all of the consequences that it has brought you, is still the way you think life should be lived. I mean, you make so many great points there, to be fair, but I suppose it starts with you must live by your decisions, essentially. And, you know, most of my decisions are to say yes. And so there are moments where you find yourselves in a pretty dark place. And in those points, that's when you need to stand up and be counted. You know, it's all well and good being able to say that you're a Royal Marine commando. But when the rounds start coming down or the bombs go off, then you've got to be a Royal Marine commando. You've got to live up to that decision. You've got to live up to the uniform and the beret and, and, and the people that you have around you, more importantly. And so when I woke up in that hospital bed, first of all, I was grateful to be alive, first and foremost. But actually... As, I say, as I've said, I'm, I was only in that situation because of all the, the processes I'd been through, good and bad. So I live by every single decision that I've made because it's made me who I am. I know if I could change one thing in life, of course, it would be that I would get my friends back. But I also know that's not going to happen. But I wouldn't change any of the other stuff because I wouldn't be sat here with you two legends doing this, which is absolutely ridiculous. Let's be honest about it. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think... If this is not the best reward you could have had. <laughs> it seems to me when you walked in, I got a feeling of it. There's, there's, a, there's a gravitas in you. You're, a, you. You've been right up to the edge, right? Yeah. I think essentially what has happened with me is that whilst what I lived through was extremely challenging and painful, the payoff is massive. And the problem that other people endure is that actually... Their their victories on a daily basis are so small Tiny. that they don't even they don't they don't you imperceptible know, they, yeah they're imperceptible and yeah. they don't grow from them. But actually, what what we need to do is just kind of look back at it and see and look for the positives. You've got to go through pain to grow. Now, it doesn't always mean physical pain. It doesn't have to be that to the extreme that you've been through. It can be emotional. Uh, it can be mental. It can be everything. In one incident, you had all of that. And, I, and again, I don't really feel I want to take you through the day because I'm sure you've done it so many times before. And there must have been so many occasions where you went, oh, if we'd have not patrolled on that route that day, if we'd have gone this way. or if the... But in the moment where something like that happens and there's a flash and a bang, what's the flood of information that washes over your body? Because the shock must be immense. Yeah, and, and you, you put it perfectly. It's that flood. It's that, you know, like I was mentioning with post-traumatic stress disorder, it's that huge intake of information all in a split second. So, you know, as I, as I went from what was completely normal, e.g. I was clearing a suspected bomb-making factory on a Friday afternoon in Afghanistan. Now, some people might think that's not an, that's not an ordinary place to yeah, be. Yeah. But to me, that was my life. And to everybody that I knew, that was their life. And so there was nothing unusual about that. So at the moment, seconds later, when I was talking to my, my mate, and you know, sadly he steps on a pressure plate and that sets off the IED, bang, I'm the next thing the next thing I really know is I'm lying on my back in just, you know, searing pain on every inch of my body. And so, you know, the things that I'm you know, the things I'm experiencing is my ears are ringing, the dust is settling. And, and this level of pain. So the first thing in your mind is, how has this happened? How have I gone from that to this? You know, and, and that's when all that information sort of comes in and then you begin to process it. And the first kind of thought is, you've been blown up. Now, I didn't know how it happened. Did this thing fallen out of the sky or, you know, had I stepped on the thing? You know, that comes a bit later. But in the very first instant, it is, you've been blown up and two things happen. First of all, there is a part of you that 
that that thinks how did you get here basically it's just like i cannot believe it all those times i woke up in the morning and went there's a one in eight chance i'm going to get killed or injured here that's a seven in eight chance i'm going to be fine and you just write it off and get on with it and there i was the one in eight jingzo and a part of you is like you idiot how did you do this and then it sounds so cliched but the other thought is it's the training kicks in and you begin to think you know I'm in pain what do I do about it and actually you know you start looking to give yourself first aid and and at that point that's when I you know went went to use my arms and essentially they've been blown off that's the long and short of it and so what comes after that is there's nothing I can do for myself here all I can do is shout and scream and hope that somebody comes and you know within seconds one of my mates was on top of me saving my life and that's you know that's that's where all kind of the next part of my life began that's a lot to take in. I, <laughs> a lot to take in. And, and he I, hasn't even I, been blown up. No, I, I, but no, but I, I took it in. The surprising bit there to me was it said that you said you were immediately in extreme pain. And my, before hearing that, I would have always thought um, that the pain would have been delayed, that the mind would have dealt with the pain. To evolutionary wise just to allow you to uh, and then the pain would fall but you, it was an immediate sense yeah. of pain so and it does differ so quite a lot of the guys the, the what we call when we term ourselves the Kazivak club so we're the lads that got casually evacuated out of afghanistan and iraq um, and basically we survived the unsurvivable a lot of the guys ultimately were blown up by improvised explosive devices like me but they stepped on the thing and what happens in that instance is whack you lose your legs you lose a, quite a lot of blood and you know quite a lot of those guys almost have a sort of calm that comes across them whereas what happened to me is i was probably you know the distance from where i am to john right now so we're talking six feet away from the bloke i was talking to and so you know it went off under his feet and so i wasn't hit by the, the heat of the blast um i was hit by all the rubble that comes flying off of it and it bludgeoned me from head to toe and so whilst I didn't have any one given, I suppose, catastrophic injury. We used to talk about catastrophic bleeds. You know, we used to talk about the platinum, uh, the, the golden hour, which is one hour to get a bloke back to a, a category one hospital and, it, and you save his life. And then it eventually, uh, on top of that, became the platinum five minutes. You had five minutes to get to stem catastrophic bleeding, basically. Tourniquets on and save that bloke's life. And so whilst I didn't really have any one catastrophic injury, what I had was every inch of my body and the best description i've heard of it was one of my friends that was dealing with me said jj you look like you've been peeled that was it and 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 with those with those injuries for those guys that were dealing with me you know we were quite good at the whole he's lost his leg tourniquet on stop that bleed you know my mate came in and was like what do you do with an arm that's not entirely off but it's sort of on and and so you know they were learning very fast what what to deal with in that situation Thank God they did, really. Had you been in a, a similar situation before? Um, so we that was the first catastrophic incident, multiple casualties of that tour. You usually find in a, in a six-month tour in Afghanistan, you might see two, three, maybe four mass casualty incidents where, you know, in our incident, we had three injured, two of them very seriously injured, and ultimately three guys were killed. Two Marines and our Afghan interpreter were killed. So that's, you know, you might see that three or four times in a six-month period. And then every other day, you're seeing a bloke lose a leg 
or a civilian loses leg, that kind of thing. And so in that week leading up to that point, because we were on an operation that took us into, you know, Taliban heartland, we had, you know, we'd sustained, for example, on the very first day on this operation, a grenade landed in our checkpoint, three lads injured. Now, none of them catastrophic, but, you know, two of them got casually evacuated, one of them stuck a bandage on and cracked on. Uh, then we had a lad shot three days later. So, you know, I'd lived through those experiences and we casivac blokes, but they, they weren't terrible at that point. Uh, and so then we were hit with this mass casualty incident and actually there was there was something similar the very next day, to be honest, uh, which my company commander was involved with, uh, involved in, and, you know, he's now one of my best mates. Um, but, you know, we woke up in hospital together. Um, so, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd experienced a bit of that, but the reality is... You know, a lot of people in Afghanistan, again, you know, when you boil those numbers down, will experience some level of, you know, trauma like that. But actually, one of those mass catastrophic incidents, that is a day when basically, you know, because Afghan's all about rolling the dice, basically. You know, every time you put your foot on the ground, you're taking a chance and you just hope that luck's on your side. And that day, the luck went the Taliban's way because they're just seeding the ground with IEDs and they're just waiting for us to step on these things, you know? So we need to get lucky every single time. That they once, just need to get lucky Yeah, a numbers once. game in the, in the crew distance, right? Well, within, within that, when you say the Taliban, the Taliban, as the title creates like a mystical essence and being, basically there was some young lad who'd been trained to of similar age to you to move some rubble, put it down where another person is about to stand and maybe be killed or severely injured do you and it's possibly a hard question do can you personify that individual can you see it as an individual or do you have to see it as the taliban to to distance it and also when you do think of that individual do you think of them with hate or forgiveness no so again you know it's I don't always use the term Taliban. We t in fact, we turn to talk about the insurgency or even the criminals. And I think the reason I used Taliban in that particular time was that, you know, when we were in Afghanistan, you know, there was a lot of times that, particularly when we were working out of our normal checkpoint and we were sort of on our standard beat, as it were, the sort of area that we sort of protected in any given time. Most of the time, I mean, we knew we were being watched. Uh, and there would be certain, like, well, I remember one day, it was, it was coming up for last light, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they just took a pop shot at us. Just, and it was, it was, it was, it was barely, you know, barely caused us any trouble whatsoever. And and it was sort of like, why did they even bother? And the reality is, they bothered because that's what what was referred to as the ten dollar Taliban. They were local farmers, mainly, or not even local. They're they're usually opium farmers who'd come across the border from Pakistan for the for the for the poppy harvest, and they stuck around and they get paid ten dollars a day to have a crack at British soldiers or international forces or whatever. And they weren't going to get their $10 unless they took a crack at us, basically. And so with those guys there, I recognised that actually they were just poor people looking for a way out, basically. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that that is what that is. The area that we were in at that time and the way that we were operating, we knew that we were up against the hardliners. They were more, you know, the organised, you know, the organised insurgency, the Taliban. Um, and so, you know, they were really coming at us and, and they, they had a level of training and certainly a level of bravery, you know, because they were coming at, you know, some of the finest trained soldiers in the world. And and on the, in the early days of this week, they were winning. They'd taken more casualties out of us than we had of them, you know. And, and don't get me wrong, Afghan's not about stacking bodies and who kills most people. It was about providing a level of 
of of quality of life for the local population that's what it was all about you know we wanted to create a better life for them than the than the shadow government the taliban the insurgency could but actually on this week it was war fighting and so when i look at them there are certain things which i find absolutely deplorable uh, of course when they used kids as scouts to to spy on us when you know when they use ieds and they know that actually whilst i could step on it there's just as much chance of a kid walking to school stepping on the thing uh, you know i find that deplorable and difficult to deal with but on the other hand you know i don't feel anger towards someone who at the end of the day saw us as the invader and and wanted to stand up to us and again you know i i, I salute their braveness for for coming up against us when some of them had just been handed a rifle and ten dollars that's 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 the extent of it but at the same time as and when the shots are fired you deal with that situation that's in front of you at the time and sadly it is you or them in that in that moment what comes after that sometimes is when you have to pull back and you have to restrain because as soon as they drop their weapon they're not they're not the taliban anymore they're not an enemy as by the rules and so you know we had to show restraint all the time and remember again that that that, that our prize wasn't we weren't there to kill people that's that was just wasn't our job that's um that was your first word. A- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was a lot in wow. there and a lot to take in. So, JJ, yes was your first word. What's your second word? Um, it is adapt. 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 Right, okay. Well, Tony, fill me in on adapt. I'll fill you in, John. Early 15th century implied in adapted to fit something for some purpose. It's from an old French adapter. As many of our words as it has Latin roots. Rooted in the origins of adapt is the idea of becoming specifically fit for something. And I've got a couple of quotes, um, and all of them I think are fabulous. So I'll quickly rattle through them. The first one is uh, from Marcus Aurelius. The uh, Roman emperor and Stoic philosopher said, Adapt yourself to the things among which your lot has been cast. I love sincerely the fellow creatures with whom destiny has ordained that you shall live. The Chinese proverb, a wise man adapts himself to circumstance as water shapes itself to the vessel that contains it. And then I think my favourite on this subject was H.G. Wells, the English writer, who said, adapt or perish, now as ever, is nature's inexorable imperative. The Chinese fella... Yeah. And H.C. Wells, I'll go with, but I think Marcus. Not so much just, Marcus. Marcus was not, just wobbling. Not one, not, <laughs> one of, if, not one of his what best. What if was Marcus okay. going on about? So obviously, there's a lot of reasons why. I mean, I can see now as you're sat here, you've got a couple of fingers missing on your left hand. There's a lot of scars on both arms. The shape of your right arm looks like it's, you know, if you if you looks did, like a chicken nugget. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a big chicken nugget, but it's it's twisted the wrong way. And and I know from doing research of you that they took you know part of your 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 torso and then built up the other muscles elsewhere so physically you've had to adapt so was that the reason for it or is it adaptation or adapt all the way through stages in your life it's it's all stages really i suppose as you said the chinese proverb had it there because we we have a saying in the marines which is uh which is raw marines gets where water can't and it's the fact that, you know, we can get ourselves into any sorts of situations uh, and deal with it. And that's most of the time when we use that term of reference, it's, it's usually after a night out when it's all gone 
spectacularly beautiful and you've ended up you know <laughs> some absolute you know all of a sudden you've ended up in some exclusive club or whatever and the lad comes back being like you'll never you know never explain never imagine what happened last night type thing again you know how i was raised i was raised in a as a minister you are your salary or your stipend is quite small but you are given a you're given a home um, but it is your responsibility to look after that home. And so we grew up in a house where there wasn't a lot of money. There was no really enough money to pay for someone to come and fix things. So my dad, before he became a, a minister, was he was headed down the route of becoming a chemical engineer, believe it or not. And, and so he is very mechanically minded. And so if there was something broken in our house, we fixed it. And so I was raised to be a tinkerer and a builder. And, and at one stage of my life, I was a design and technology teacher. And I taught kids, you know, how to build pencil cases and, you know, do graphic communication. But the reality is what you're teaching them is um, problem solving. It's how to look at a situation, you know, a problem and come up with a solution, how to adapt what you've got in front of you. And so in the Marines, my specific task, you know, as you join the Marines, you do a couple of years as a general duties Marine, a rifleman. And then you specialise into your task because the idea is the Marines, you know, the three commander brigade is meant to be self-sufficient. We've got, you know, we've got our own snipers, we've got our own drivers, we've got our own chefs, whatever it is, we've got all our things. And my role was an assault engineer. And so as a lance corporal who was an assault engineer, it was my job to go into certain situations and do frontline engineering support. And that was, you know, I was only one of a couple in our company. So that makes you senior within that task. And that's a beautiful thing about about the military and about the Marines in particular. People talk about, you know, commanders never asking people to do something that they can or wouldn't. Now, the reality is that's complete nonsense. The point of building teams is that you have people with different skill sets who come together to achieve a task and to adapt to the situation. So you can find yourself as a relatively junior Marine, but with this, you know, this, this specialization being essential on any given task and actually that's why i was there on that week's operation because they needed the assault engineer because we were basically going into a building battening down the hatches with some sandbags and stuff like that and waiting for the enemy to come and so that was a big part of my you know my military career and you're absolutely right john you know my life is all about adaption now it is all about you know i woke up in a hospital bed and by the time they put me back together and I had some semblance of sort of normality, e.g. being able to get out of the bed. I had this brand new body. You know, I'd, I'd gone through, I've lost count of how many hours of surgery by that point. And what I had was this new body that was held together by the incredible work of surgeons, nurses, physios, whatever it was. But I had to basically relearn every human function. You know, physically, the other thing that happens apart from, you know, that you know, the physical disability is that when you spend nine weeks lying in a hospital bed, and you have such catastrophic wounds. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. 
See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. I was getting 10,000 calories pumped into me every single day in the beginning, and it still wasn't enough to regenerate the tissue. And so by the time I had even woken up, I went from being the most physically fit I'd ever been in my life to basically a skeleton, just all the fat and muscle had just been eaten off my body. And so when I began my physio, I remember the first time I ever you know, stood up and they asked me to try and stand on my tiptoes and I couldn't. And that was a, that was a pretty bleak point you know, when I when I was I'd gone from this physical fitness and this, you know, in many ways taking stuff for granted. You know, it was. <laughs> I, I'm a bit of a believer in life that uh, you're not good at something until you can do it with a hangover, and that's that. The Marines <laughs> gives you that. It's that. You know, if you want to go out and s- soar with the eagles, the next morning you've got to get up and cluck with the turkeys. So it doesn't matter whether you go out and have a big night. The next morning, you it's troop fizz, and you're getting on with it. And there's no excuse. You know, and so there was me having gone from just this this inherent physicality to nothing and so i had to relearn every single function and rebuild myself in a new way and i and i still have to adapt and learn things every single day if you don't mind me asking i'm all day and i'm i am 32 yeah you're 32 and the accidents happened when you were 23 tw- so it's been nine years nine years so yeah. and and if you finished all surgery or or rehabilitate yeah i mean so, rehabilitation i should imagine is a continuous yeah, thing yeah so i so you know in in a nutshell nine weeks in hospital to begin with then they go to headley court which actually quite a lot of people will have heard of it's closed now and it's a new facility but headley court at the time you know it was it was the center of excellence for you know rebuilding soldiers in the world for that matter and i spent a sort of year going in and out of there and then i went back for more surgery and so i finished or i thought i finished my surgery in 2016 and bearing in mind i won my medals at the invictus games in 2014 so i wasn't even finished at that point so i finished my surgery in 2016 and then i managed i think i think i managed 2017 without any surgery and then the thing i've learned and again i suppose it's that you start taking life for granted a little bit you know i kind of thought i was fixed and life was okay and you're right there's you know you have to maintain fitness and you have to be sensible but I've, I, I basically, do you know what I was doing? I was working on the the coverage of D-Day 75. I was one of the reporters for the BBC. And it was, I mean, as far as my career goes, you know, that was everything to me to get to work on this monumental day. And uh, I, funnily enough, I got a phone call from my surgeon the day before. And she just phoned in just to check in and see if everything's all right. And I said, don't you worry. You'll never hear from me again. I'm, I'm fine. I'm healed, you know. And uh, the next morning, as I prepared to go go live, I woke up and my elbow I just had a little tiny hole in it and a little bit of an infection. And all of a sudden, it suddenly struck home because hours later I was in hospital, you know, and days later I was getting surgery on it. And it, and it, the thing is, when you survive the unsurvivable, you have to accept. And and as I say, I'm I, I I've learnt this now that. The side effect of, of surviving is that you must you, you've got to endure this forever because you know we're living in uncharted territory basically you know a surgeon once said to me that the problem the problem with you JJ is there isn't a textbook about fixing you but once we've done you there will be and that's yeah, the thing you know I'm, we're, yes. we're, I'm you know I wondered if there was um, was there a turning point was there a, a bottom of me now and then a climb or did you maintain that um, that same mindset that you've come in with today. 
So I suppose at the point when I when I'd been blown up, and as I say, it was about twenty eight minutes from bang to being on a helicopter, and about an hour from bang to being in a hospital. And so there was a point at which I heard the helicopter circling. Must have been twenty five minutes into it or something like that. And I knew at that point, if I made it to that helicopter, I had about a ninety five percent chance of surviving. And so at that point, I began to think to myself, <laughs> I don't know how disabled I am. I don't know what's even happened to me at this point but i know that this is bad enough that i'm going home i think and at that point in the tour i was just exhausted afghan is relentless you know whether it's the just the non-stop pace of it um the heat the weight you know all of it and so i, I knew that i was sort of going to be heading home and i began to think i'm going to see my family and i'm going to see my missus and so whilst it was a blink of an eye and I woke up in a hospital bed, I still thought I was in Afghan and maybe a couple of hours later, obviously a week had a gone week at this point. Passed. So I actually woke up and stupidly, you know, my first sort of, I'd known roughly what happened to me and, and I tried to sort of make it seem like it wasn't a big deal. And I remember, I remember my brother-in-law coming in particular and I was like, all right, Paddy, how's, how's it going? How's the golf? How's your summer been? And he was just like, you idiot. Like, why are you asking me these dumb questions? You know, like, you nearly died, mate. And it was just because I was just trying to make light of the situation. That, oh, it's okay. But they, they understood that this was a big deal, and I didn't yet. But I suppose whilst, it, whilst the, the enormity of it started to set in, particularly at the point when they told me my career was over, I think, because there was a point early on where I was like, what, you know, when this is all said and done, I want a job in the stores, or I want to work in the careers office, I want to stay in the Marines. And somebody basically, well, I was going to say sat me down, but I was already lying down, said to me, no, because you know we've done that with guys in the past, and after a year they go, this isn't why I joined the Marines, you know, and I need to watch my mates deploy in operations, and I can't be there to help them. You need to accept that your career is over and you've you've got a second chance here. Go out and, you know, start start afresh and we'll support you to do that. It's the amazing thing. And so well, that was one point. But really what happened was when uh, it would probably be I'd been asleep for a week and maybe I'd been sort of a, a semi-awake for five days or something. And I was starting to piece it together. And I remembered when I'd been hit, my mate that was patching me up said, JJ, I've done everything I can for you but I need to go and deal with the other lads now. And I remember thinking, please don't leave me, but also thinking, but you've got to go and deal with these blokes. And so he went off and just told me to keep like screaming and shouting so that he knew I was still alive. And I did that. That's kind of instinct, the whole shouting thing. And so at that point, I'm now thinking back to it, I remember thinking, wait a minute, he said, I've got to go deal with the other lads. Well, where are they? Now, my mate Cass was in the bed next to me. He'd lost his leg. But I said, if he didn't say I've got to do, you know, deal with him or Cass... I knew there was lots of people hurt here, perhaps. And so I started asking the questions. And that's they don't keep information from you, but they wait for you to ask the questions. And so I asked what had happened, and then they told me, you know, Sam and Ollie haven't made it. And at that point, that's when you realise, you know, if you're if you're lying in a hospital bed and you're feeling you're feeling like you're broken, you're down, and there's two choices: the choice of feeling sorry for yourself or the choice of getting better and doing everything you can to facilitate that you realize they were never given that choice so why should you be given that choice so you've got to take the latter you've got to get better and the bloke that was in the hospital bed next to me Cass who's a large in life character we were going in and out of surgery every other day so we just we'd been next to each other for two weeks now and barely spoken and he was coming out and I was going in basically and we passed like ships in the night and we had a little check catch up how you doing mate and and he said, "Have you heard about Sam and Ollie?" And I said, "I've just I've just found out." And at that point, I said, "We're doing this for them, mate. 
we're getting better for them. And that's, you know, that drives me to this day, whether it's them or their families or whatever it is. It's the knowing that, you know, who knows what happens at the end of all this. But if I turn up at the pearly gates and they're standing there waiting for me, I want them to be able to say, fair play, mate, you, you, you took the chance, you know, and that's that's it, isn't it? You can't, can't take it for granted. You've got to be worth it. I don't know what your third word is, but... I'm I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be sausages. (laughs) Because you've said something there that... It's like there's the final scene on on Saving Private Ryan where where they say, you you have to be worth it. And it's it's cinematic and it loves you. But you said it from someone who's there who carries it. And and you, you carry it as a motivation rather than as a burden. And that I think says something about you and probably you make Cass and you know and as I say I've met other veterans who have been through similar experiences and this aura that I've gained from all of them is this like we owe something to those not us to those not here. That's an amazing thing to spare on. I know you do a lot of motivational speaking. Is that an avenue that you go down? within those motivational speaking seminars. Do you know, it's, it's funny because I, I'm really lucky in one sense that but telly keeps me really busy. And so that's my mainstay. And the thing I love about doing a bit of, you know, the motivational speaking on the side is that you actually see the human beings in the audience in front of you. You know, telly, you, you know it, you're just staring at a camera and, you know, doing what you do. So to actually see and then be able to speak to people after that, it's already starting to feel a benefit of what you said. And the thing with me is that, you know, I'm very aware of, as, as, as you pointed out, of the people who are not here to tell the story, but also the people who have a story to tell but can't do it. They know they, they they for one reason or another are un- unable to share what they've lived through, and so there's a I believe there's a benefit for me being able to impart that information on people. Whether it is the you know the understanding of what we all went through in the Afghan conflict, and actually that it's not all doom and gloom as well. You know, and a lot of positive came out of it for the people. And you know, my generation of veterans, even on just a pure statistical level, are not doomed. Actually, you know, there is a small minority of people who need help, absolutely. And, you know, I do everything I can to help and empower that that community. But actually, the veteran community, you are better off statistically having served in the military, particularly during the last couple of decades. And so, you know, I want to dispel some of those rumours and basically take charge of, you know, my generations, whether we call it the growth generation, the Invictus generation, the Afghan generation, whatever it is, you know, I want to ensure that people don't look at us with pity or people don't look at us as, you know, that that slide back to what we were talking about at the beginning, you know, know, the perception of the military. Because, you know, guys continue to serve to this day on operations, yes, but also, you know, the the operations are not kinetic like they once were, but it doesn't mean that men and women aren't prepared to stand up for what's right and wrong at any given point. As you spoke then, there were three words came into my mind. One was gratitude and one was empathy. But the one that I think you've taught me the meaning of is uh, fraternity. The, you hear about a band of brothers and the brotherhood, that all, or on a bigger scale, the brotherhood of man. And that's an abstract concept, I think. Until I heard you speak then, I understand it now. So, JJ, we've had yes, we've had adapt. What's your third word? Well, I think we've we've kind of dwelled on this in some respects already. 
and my word is perspective. Okay. Oh, for Christ's sake, <laughs> Sausage would have pulled sausage. us out of it. <laughs> let's, let's do one with sausage as well. So we do, yeah, we'd, again, there's not, uh, perspective is essentially is the science of, of optics to inspect, to look through, to look closely at. And it's actually an Italian artist term. The meaning there is a proper or just proportion appropriate in relation to the mind of the parts of a subject to one to another. So it's a visual thing, but I suspect in your case, it has a, it's in a broader context. Yeah, I, I think, you know, perspective and hindsight being a sort of thing that under, underpins that. You know, put it this way, when, it, when, I, when I think about the best stories of my life, the best adventures that I've been on, none of them... None of them start with, remember that day that everything went right? You know, everything, the best times I've ever had was because they were pretty miserable and we made good of that situation. And so, you know, something could be so, you know, so disastrous and difficult at the time. But it's it's why we have a bar in the military. We have the mess. The mess is for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's so, you know, so that if someone makes a mistake, it's so we can, so we can forgive it. You know, you can go in there and go, lads, I'm sorry I did that, I messed up, whatever it is, and you buy, you know, you buy a round of beers, you buy a crate of beer, whatever it is. Um, and it's so that, you know, you, you can, you can, you know, we, we dwelled on it slightly earlier, which was that sort of living by the decisions that happen at the time. We, t- we talk about you can't argue with tactics. So, like, you'll look at the corporal, which is like the second rank up in the military, and actually a huge weight of responsibility sh- sits on his shoulders because he's in charge of a team of about eight or ten blokes. And whilst the colonels and the brigadiers and all that sort of stuff have the big plan, the actual implementation of that filters all the way down to eight or nine blokes at the very sharp end of this stuff. And they're led by this sort of young corporal, 25 years old. And he is what you know. He sees what's in front of him, and the decision that he makes is life or death for him and his friends. But ultimately, he has to make it. And and there's no amount of hindsight in doing. Oh, you should have done this, and should have done that. And we can learn from situations, of course, but we can't point fingers and say you were wrong for doing that, and you know, and vilify somebody for it. We need to be able to forgive those situations. And then the other thing that the bar is for is, as I say, is for telling the stories because. The thing about the military and the Marines in particular is that we are built on our heritage. We are built on the fact that, you know, I go to the Commando Memorial in Spean Bridge and I look at the three guys that stand up on that statue. The Second World War Commando is 80 years old now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. And those guys are my forefathers. Those are the guys whose shoes I'm trying to fill. It's like being an all-black or playing for Liverpool, whatever it is. You are the custodian of that shirt for the time in which you're wearing it. You're the custodian of the Green Beret. And I must ensure that I leave it in a, you know, as good, if not a better state than what I found it. And you know, my victories and my failures reflect upon it. And so you know, we need to be able to share that heritage and look back at these situations. And as I say, the best ones of those come from... It was really shit that day, but bloody hell did we do well. 
there's a lot of phraseology that you use throughout this show. Good lad, bloke. It makes it feel like a very male environment. There's a there's a tenderness within this masculinity that's hidden by the fact that you've got to be hard enough to be in there. But when you're in there, we'll, we'll we're there for each other. There's a genuine. I can see it in your eyes now. A pure love. Yeah. It, it absolutely is, and it's the fact. You know, I was serving in Afghanistan with blokes that I'd only met few months before really you know we came together six months before and you know you live with each other you live on top of each other and you quickly learn that you know these guys are your best friends and they've got your back and you you absolutely love one another you know and you know you the 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 most ridiculous example i can give and it'll probably make my mum shudder she hears it so when you find uh, or suspect you found an ied in the ground in afghanistan and it might be at a point that you need to cross, you need to get past. To be able to move on or to deal with it, you need to confirm it. What that means is you've got to, you've got to get two pieces of information that say, this is absolutely an ID, let's get a team in here to deal with it. So it's your job to get a metal detector, get a bit of a beep out of it. Yeah, okay, there's something there. Then you get down your belt buckle and you give it a little prod and you start trying to excavate it a little bit, just enough to say, yep, yeah, there's an ID there. In comes the team and it deals with it. But you'll get situations where you'll then go, no, actually, it's not an ID. I'm pretty comfortable that, you know, it, it was just a funny-looking rock or whatever it is. And you stand up and you look back at the lads and you go, well, we've got to carry on down that street. And so the thing you do, and it's so dumb, you know, I can't believe it now, but we did it, is you just give it a little tap of your foot just to make sure because... <laughs> and and that, that their life costs more than yours as far as I'm concerned. Uh, just... Uh that's um, extraordinary. I just thought, again, picking up on what you said, John, that's a very insightful question because I think um, the template of masculinity that um, that we grow up with or I grew up with, I think it's pretty universal. I don't think it's necessarily restricted to Sheffield in the 60s, but it was John Wayne and it was being a tough guy. And I think um, an awful lot of men suffer with that template because it's a very narrow definition of masculinity. I think the interesting thing about what's happening right now with mental health across the board, you know, first of all, we've got a far better understanding of the fact that you just can't bottle things up. It's just so much better out there. And that doesn't need to be going to tell a shrink or a doctor, just have a cup of tea with your mates. And actually, I used to lump all my stuff and in hindsight, I was lucky that I did this. But I used to lump it on this uh, this woman at Headley Court, who was she was a she she wasn't my mental health specialist. She was there. I'd had a bit of a brain injury because you know that's what happens when you kick a clatter to the head, uh, although be it mild. So I had like memory issues and stuff to begin with. So I used to see her, and I used to call them a head doctor. And so I just cracked a relationship with this lovely woman, and. Every so often I would just go in and unload onto her. And it wasn't her job, but she would just sit there, listen, and that was that was hugely beneficial to me. And so one of the things that the military is doing right now, one of my friends, David Wiseman, who was shot in Afghanistan uh, and endured some pretty horrific things, has been at the helm of this, is that a lot of what we do in the military is really positive for our mental health. The you know, robustness that we create and, and you know the, the resilience we create through training in particular, basically by making, making people cold, wet and miserable. It's really good for you. So what they're trying to do is kind of get to the science of it all and actually go, if we spend as much effort and time sharpening our minds as we do our bodies, think how great we could be if we didn't just treat it as an afterthought and we didn't just treat mental health when it's disaster point 
and we're trying to stop something happening. If on day one, week one, when you join the military, people go, you need to behave like this and be a soldier athlete. You know, if, if, if I say that, I, you know, it's changing now, but if I'd said, you know, I see a, a, a psychologist to somebody, there's a kind of negative connotation that came with that. But if I said, oh, I see a sports psychologist, you know, people would go, bloody hell, he takes that seriously. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. why, you know, why aren't we trying to get, unlock that extra 10% that comes from sharpening your mind? And so the military is beginning to do that. Now, as I say, they've done that in the past just by chucking people in puddles, but there's other ways of doing it as well. And there's ways that, we could all be doing that oh definitely definitely that still in some respects appears it's focused on the individual but it's not it's focused on the group in it it's all everything that you said today is about outside of you it's the group it's how you fit into a bigger whole which is a great to take your word perspective to have on the world completely and and as you say it you know, teamwork underpins everything I do. And of course, you know, one of the things that was that was tricky about coming up with three words here is that instinctively my mind goes to our commando values, for example, courage, determination, teamwork, cheerfulness. And so teamwork, you know, underpins everything. Um, because, you know, as we spoke about teams and how they come together and how we look, each, look after each other. And, you know, you are trying to better yourself for the collective. That's essentially what we're trying to do. And the best way of doing that, as I say, is to have the perspective of being able to, first of all, look at the perspective of this is bigger than you. We used to, we were told day one, week one of joining the Marines, and it's stuck with me ever since, and I truly believe this. You will fail this as an individual or you'll pass this as a team, you know? And that's, that's how it, that's, that underpins everything we do. One thing that we ask everybody who comes in, is to come up with a word that they would gladly never hear again. Now, I have to say, before we come on to your your word, I'm so hopeful that your final word is sausage. <laughs> <laughs> this was a trickier one, actually, um, because, you know, we spoke about it earlier. It's because, um, because like, my outlook on life, that, that you are created by all the positives and negatives that sit around you. You know, the, whilst there was words that, you know, I could gladly never hear again, there's a, they still need to continue to exist. You know, there's lots of words yes. that, 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 that need to continue to exist. And we've kind of learnt this, I suppose, in, in recent times, even, even more so. But they need to be sort of consigned to the history books. But we need to acknowledge that, you know, that their existence, mm. you know, yes. that it was there. Um, because we'll just forget it and we'll forget what's underpinned by that. And so I struggled to find one because, as I say, I kind of stand by all the all the decisions I've made in life um, and all the things I've lived through. Um, but the word I've gone with is disability. Disability. Yeah, because for a time in my life, it became something that defined me, I suppose. Um, and... It, it, when we look at the, the certain points in my life, particularly post-injury, there is a point in your life where you become very negative-facing. You are now a former soldier. You are now no longer able to do this. You're now, and people tell you these things as well. People come to you and say, you'll not be able to do that. And so disability becomes a negative term as well. It becomes a, a barrier to what you can do. And so you begin to define yourself by what you can't do, which is a totally rubbish way of living because... I take part in a in a and I and I present a a disability. Well, that's rubbish. I was going to say a disability sports event, but it's not. It's a it's an inclusive sports event. It's sport for all. It, you know, it's a triathlon where people can come along, and whatever the barrier is to them being able to do a triathlon is taken away. 
you know, if you need to ride a tandem bike, you can. If you need to ride a recumbent trike, like I, I rode at the Invictus Games, you can. If you need, if you can't swim, but your dad can swim and you sit in a dinghy being pulled along by him, you do that. So it removes all the barriers. And so what you start looking at is what you can do. And they theme it all around superheroes. Because at the end of the day, superheroes are not defined by what they can't do. Spider-Man is Spider-Man because of all the things he can do. It's not because he can't get out of the bath. You know, it is. And so... I became defined by what I couldn't do and it took overcoming that and redefining myself initially as an athlete at the Invictus Games and now redefining myself as a TV presenter. That's what I do for a living. That's what I get up in the morning and I try and be really, really good at. And that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. That's my mission. That's what I had in the military. It's what was taken away from me. And so disability was a barrier from, to get to that. As you said, uh, um, it's a funny way, disability, and it, it's it's... Now, I'll, I'll, because, you know, in the past we had words like, there, there was the spastic society, there was various things that yeah. now has been put away as as labels that were judgments. And disability is, is now moving into that realm of being moved away. But the interesting thing with having an, an accent like I've got, this is this. this. <laughs> so I would say this glass, yeah. this watch, this phone. Yeah. So, so it's either this ability or that ability, as far as I can see. And maybe there should be the that ability games. You've nailed it, because that's the thing. It's, it's three letters too long. It's, it's ability. Yeah. Because it's, disability is far, too, um, it's far too descriptive, and it chucks, you, chucks a lot of people into one bracket, for starters. And, and don't get me wrong, we need some sort of term because there need to be provisions in society. You know, there still needs to be yeah. a disabled bay outside a car park. You know, that needs to be something. And I tell you, the, wor- the word that's even worse is able-bodied on the other end of the spectrum. You know, yeah. because ability, we all fall on a spectrum of ability in whatever it is we're doing. And so, you know, whilst I'm disabled and physically disabled, and I struggle to do things on a daily basis. I can maintain a physical fitness that's probably higher than most of the population of this country that's that's just the, the crack with it and I, and and the thing is you know my wife is polish and so when i go to poland i can't speak the language am i disabled there well no it's just i haven't got that skill set in that particular area and so again it's looking at what you can and can do in any given situation and rather than making it some blanket term we all need to accept that we sit on this spectrum of ability for whatever it is that we okay, face can i just ask if you've got children yeah, I've got a three-year-old daughter. In fact, she'll be four next week, and a one-year-old son. And they're awesome. Yeah. So you've a Scottish father, a Polish mother. Jesus, they're going to be determined. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's lived through all this. You know what I mean? And she's dragged me through it. And uh, you know, she's the reason I've got anything. The thing with with disability right now as well. And I think about I think about the Superhumans ad that we did in. Uh, we did in 2012 for the Paralympics, you know, which totally inspired me. You know, I was in rehab and I and I, and I was disabled at the time, and the London 2012 Paralympics were massive, and obviously they would inspire me to get involved in the Invictus Games and in turn become a presenter at the Rio Paralympics, which is sort of the big birth of my career. That advert, which sort of was so in your face, you know, it was impossible to ignore that these guys are here and they're awesome, basically. And it was so important at the time to, for breaking down that barrier. But I hope we look at that in 20, 30 years' time like it was a cigarette advert. Yeah. And we were like, 
we had to do that. That was all right to say, but we still need to remember in perspective that it was necessary at that given uh, time. But you're absolutely right. We can't. I, I think we we're we would be wrong to consign those words. We need that reminder. It's, I think everything that you said there at the end is about being othered. That again, it's back to that same thing but of, of splitting people into groups and defining them rather than just accepting the. As he said, we're all on on a spectrum of humanity and we don't have to um, pick a lane and stay in that lane and the last thing I'll say about it as well is that a lot of the things which disable people are not their physical abilities they are where we have drawn the line in society yeah. for what is acceptable yes. it, a lot of you know my friends you know, particularly wheelchair users are disabled because because society doesn't put enough ramps in or elevators because they don't they don't value it they don't think about it and you, in some ways, you need to have your eyes opened to, 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 to discover that, because I'm not going to say that I've, I've thought like yeah. this my entire life. It's experiencing it firsthand that sort of opened my eyes to it, or having friends that you know, experienced it that way. And I know that this is a gradual process, but we need to get further along it. And that, and that is, it, it, one, in the way that we physically build the world, but how we, how we view it as well, because society creates those barriers. And, and if we can just you know, begin, as I say, to just consider everybody a human being with some level of ability in whatever situation it is and then again look to society as one big team and help each other in those moments i wanted to finish by saying jj i was trying to think of uh, what word i would take from your presentation of your words and it would be um inspirational genuinely but he, he was only given three words you've given him a fourth You've cheated. <laughs> I was su- I was summing up the three. No, it in, is in the receiving of JJ. You are the first person that we've had in as a guest that neither of us knew beforehand, and also in some respects was a mystery to us. But also because of where you've come from, I kind of had a sense of what you might be because, as you say, you know, you you're a Royal Marine. There's a type of person who is that. But you've also brought in an insight that I, in all honesty, wasn't expecting. You've used three words, yes, adapt perspective, that will probably be viewed completely differently now by the people who've listened to this. And disability is a label that perhaps we've moved away from. But you've certainly proved the point that it's not it's not a label that limits life. So thank you. Thank you. No, thank you, guys. It's just... It's lovely to get it out. <laughs> the, That's what the, the Marines always the do. Thank you. My thoughts about that talk, John, were I think the conceit, the idea that we had between us was that people were bringing words that we already know but don't really know. And I think that that was the most vivid and striking example of that. JJ taught me to understand things that I thought I understood, and I think that's a privilege. I can't say any more than that, Tony. I mean, you were massively moved by it. I was moved by it to his moments he was moved, but also... Something we, we thought of doing this show or this podcast we, we came up with the idea of using words as a crutch to learn something of somebody a little marker in their life I think when somebody's lived such an extreme life it couldn't be more apparent that, that words 
can be the thing that are the key to unlocking what else is going on. That was a hell of an episode, I'm sure you'll agree. Thanks for listening to it. Don't forget to subscribe, recommend it to other people, leave us a review. Me and Tony love doing this show, but obviously we love doing it because we're sharing it with you. This podcast was brought to you by our partner, Quorn. Super protein, super tasty. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop Popcorn. Imagine this, perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients, popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now. In the climate-ravaged year of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven, a geoengineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she is willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Rhea Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.